Although we can't go back in time, we can reflect on our past experiences and learn from them. But wouldn't it be so amazing if we could? If you could, what would you tell yourself? This is Letters to My Younger Self. I'm Liz Gardner. Join me as we talk with some of my favorite people about their life stories and how they've learned and how we can become a little better by hearing their incredible stories. Dear Younger Kristen, what you have feared is correct. You are not like other people. (laughs) You have a unique mix of interests, skills, desires, characteristics, and abilities that is unlike anyone else. You are, in fact, a misfit. If misfit means everything I just described. But what you don't know and where you are not correct is that so is everyone else on Earth. There is no such thing as cookie cutter, especially when it comes to imagination. Your imagination, like everyone's, is unique, and you will need it in your life, all your life. In many ways, it will become your lifeline, and there will be situations, people's beliefs, societal norms, bosses, boyfriends, and even your own self-talk that will tell you your imagination is frivolous, just for play, not valuable, not special to you, something to be used as a child, then tossed away like a too small sweater. Instead, it will become what helps you make a living for yourself and others. In fact, using your imagination coupled with other skills will help you create and sell billions of dollars worth of products, meet hundreds of interesting and intelligent people, travel the real world, and write stories that pull people into a world of your own creation. It will help you problem-solve issues both simple and complex, serve and support others beyond the edges of your own hands or time, Maximize your abilities and attention and navigate a life full of loves, losses, and plot twists. But in addition, if you respect and nurture your imagination, it will be a comfort, a coping mechanism. Through ups and downs and even a global pandemic, it will be a connector of friends, a source of meaning, And surprisingly, and most importantly, an unfiltered, gushing and gooey fountain of childlike spinning in a tutu on a sunny afternoon with flowers in your hair, source of joy, one that you didn't expect. The question that will spark your imagination in your life will be what if, and if you learn to what if up and forward rather than backwards and down, it will feed your soul and bear amazing and awesome fruit. And so, Kristen, you must be the champion of your own imagination. You are the only one who can be. Fight for it. Feed it. Respect it. Even bleed a little for it. Learn how it works and what it needs. It is one of your precious God-given gifts for both yourself and for others, no matter where and how it is applied. And anyone who tells you differently, including yourself, is wrong. Oh, and let your parents pay for the braces in middle school. It sucks to have them at 40. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. I'm excited to talk to you today. Me too. This podcast is such a treat. And I am so excited for all of you guys to hear from Kristen Knight. She is amazing. I was introduced to Kristen by my mother-in-law, Susie. She went to high school and college with Kristen, and they are lifelong friends. And she's been telling me about her amazing author friend who wrote 
this book, Burning Zozo. And I just finished the book not too long ago and reached out to Kristen for an interview. And I know you can't have favorites, but this was probably one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever had. Reading her novel and then getting the inside into her creativity and how she comes up with the characters and how the process all unfolds was just fascinating to me. Today we talk about protecting your creativity, feeding your soul, and her whole writing process. And it's just amazing to me. She's also works at Young Living as the Senior Vice President of Product Management and Product Marketing. She is just a delight and I hope you enjoy her interview today. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah at the foot of Mount Olympus which I imagined all kinds of great things were going on on Mount Olympus. I was very studious and very imaginative. And in fact, my cousin said to me the other day, she said, you know, you were a little bossy when we were young. (laughs) And I said, bossy? What do you mean? I don't think I was bossy. I think I was super nice, you know. And she said, let's just say you wanted to control the narrative whenever we were pretending. So as a kid, I, I really liked to pretend and imagine and I'd create forts in my house and experiences and whole worlds with my Barbie dolls and was a little nerdy too, frankly, really loved <laughs> science and, and things like that. So that's what I was like is growing up. That's awesome. Well, some people call it bossy. Other people just say they know what they want, right? You just... Well, she meant when we were playing. <laughs> so I had to drive the storyline is what she meant like when we were playing Barbies or dress up or anything she said you wanted to control the narrative yeah which was interesting because I thought everyone had a narrative going on in their head and I learned later in life not everyone does so that's funny I was pretty so. bossy growing up too I had four younger sisters and I think I was oh were you pretty good at bossing everybody around so I, I wasn't bossy in any other way except when it came to storytelling and imagining and Barbies and all of that kind of thing. So I was the youngest and really wasn't in charge of much, but I, I had a story going in my head and I felt like we should act it out. So apparently not everyone has that, I've learned. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's where I wanted to control the narrative because I thought I thought other people were seeing the same thing in their head that I was and they weren't. So that was that was a good lesson. Yeah. So did you like writing stories when you were little? You know, I didn't write stories when I was little. I read voraciously. So I did love to imagine and be in another world. Um, I did pretend a lot, though, and play a lot of Barbies and dress-ups and built forts and worlds and all of that. I really didn't start writing until I was in my 40s. And how I started writing was I travel a lot for business, and I was on a long flight and was done, you know, reading the magazines and watching the movies and... I had this story idea come to me about a little boy named Philip Foster who was so frustrated with his tooth fairy that he fired her one (laughs) night. He just kept coming to me and he was so clear in my head that I just started writing on my laptop and by the time we landed I had 25 pages. Wow. And I thought, maybe I could finish this story about this little kid. You know, what happens next? I wanted to know what happens next. And so then I just started doing it sort of as a, almost a mental exercise to really feed my creativity um, and I really loved it and just kept going and going and took classes and had writers groups and, and started shaping 
novel-length stories, um, and it, it, really, it really fed me. And so I kept doing it as a hobby and have ever since. I feel like a lot of times people think if you want to do something, you have to start it when you're young or you need to go to school for that or the ship has sailed. <laughs> it's refreshing to know that you can start something new in your 40s and your 50s and, you know, at any stage of life that you can pick up a new skill or do something that's different than what you've always been doing. Yeah, you absolutely can. And the other thing is I grew up believing, for whatever reason, that my imagination was frivolous and part of play to sort of be thrown away and not something to be really exercised and refined and I felt like it wasn't as valuable as some of the other skills that I saw around me, more of the left-brained, task-oriented skills. You know, even in my family, there's a lot of left-brainers in my family and so storytelling was play, in quotes, if you will, something that you leave with your childhood. And so when I started doing it again in my 40s, I cannot tell you how much joy I had from it. And I get a lot of creativity at work in what I do, but sometimes it doesn't fill the cup completely. Yeah. And if that's the case, I just go home and write and really give respect to my imagination. I cannot tell you how it's fed me in ways nothing else has. And in moments where I needed to be fed, writing and leaning into the imagination I thought I would have to leave behind as a child um, has helped me through thick and thin. And now I protect it. I protect my imagination. I listen to it. I nurture it. And it has a specific pattern. And we can talk about that if you want. But how to protect your imagination and champion it has been a big life lesson for me. That's really neat. Well, and I love how everyone's brains work, you know, and how you have these left-brained individuals who they thrive on mm -hmm. having like logic and reasoning. My husband is such a left-brain individual. Even seeing my son and seeing certain things, creative elements that he really likes too, and how you can't just try to fit in with everybody else because what you need is different for every, every person's different what they need and so I think being in tune with yourself of saying I need this creative outlet I think creativity is good for everyone but I think that f figuring out what it is that fills you up is so important that is the key right there so my dad very left-brained very logical he imagined in his own way does that make sense yeah so he used the phrase that all of us that write and do creative work uses, but in a different way, and that's what if. So I bet Nate asked questions about, you know, what if the balance sheet was a little bit, that this ratio was a little bit higher on the balance sheet, what would that do to the, the return on equity? You know, that is imagining. Yeah. Things like building buildings, absolutely before they do those blueprints, they're asking what if. Yeah. Mathematicians ask what if all the time. Bricklayers ask what if. It doesn't matter where your skill is. If you're asking what if, you are imagining. And you've got to protect the what ifs in your life. And as a child growing up, I thought my what ifs weren't that important. And later in life when I started writing, and even what I do for a living now, I don't write for a living. I create product and do product marketing. And all I do all day is ask what if. 
Now, everybody asks what if in two ways. There's two directions to ask what if. You can either what if up or what if down. And what I mean by that is you can do either what ifing in a positive, creative, forward-thinking way, or you can what if negatively, doomsday, um, doomsday, <laughs> backwards thinking into the past, beating yourself like, what if that happens to me again? Or what if I embarrass myself or what, you know, and, and God bless my mother, man. She would all say, well, what if you don't? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so that's one thing I've learned is I really have to protect my imagination and what if up. And I practice what if upping all the time. <laughs> and then I'll actually dip into a character world and what if in that world. And it, and it helps really feed me. Yeah. So, and protecting your imagination, you know, you're not taught this as a kid. You're the only one that can champion your own creativity. You're the only one that understands the clockwork there, how it works, what the gears are, where it stops, where it starts. And I personally believe it's God-given, and it's there to help you through your life. And my imagination has helped me through my life in a way I never expected. And to toss it away is, what I learned is it's my lifeblood. And even in my career, like I have an MBA, I did left brain schooling, but how I use it and how I leverage those tools is right brained and, and I use my imagination to do it. I ask, you know, what if this hand sanitizer didn't smell like <laughs> ickiness? You know, what if it oil? Or yeah. you know, what if we created a mascara that cleaned itself? You know, those kinds of things are the same skill set that I use when I'm writing novels and everybody has them. Even left-brained people has that have the what-if lever, and that's imagination. Yeah. So, problem-solving. I think the theme of this podcast of saying, if you could go back in time, what would you say? And obviously, we know that we can't, mm -hmm. but I think it's a good form of thinking, what did I learn from this experience? Mm -hmm. Not saying, let's all dwell on the past and let's all beat ourselves up because we didn't know X, Y, or Z, but that we can learn from our experiences or other people can learn from what we've experienced but I like how you say the what if up mm -hmm. instead of what ifing down because I think you really can beat yourself up because we've all I mean none of us are perfect we've all made mistakes we've all done things we regret and there's no point in really dwelling on that past just right. learning from those experiences right. and we can't try to fit ourselves in a box. Does that make sense? There may be a lot of people on, you know, listening to this podcast that may be like, well, I can't write a novel. I just don't have that in me. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you have in you? So one of the people I love to watch is Marie Kondo. Uh -huh. Do you know who she is? Yeah. She has had a fantastic imagination around a very specific left-brained thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she imagined that the way she approaches organizing your closet, which you don't think is an imaginative thing, could be done in a certain way and could be served up in a new way, in a fresh way, through new means. And look at what she's done. That's still imagination. That's still creativity. She what if up there yeah, um, in a very kind of left-brained linear world and good for her. Yeah, That is creativity right there at its core. And so you were kind of talking a little bit about your career now. Do you feel like you're writing at home versus your career? Do you feel like they kind of balance each other out or? 
Tell us a little yeah, bit more so about that. That's a good question. So what I do for a living is I'm responsible for product management and marketing for Young Living Essential Oils. So the entire product portfolio globally is the responsibility of my team in terms of what is it, what are we creating, and why does it matter? Why do people want to spend money on it? And so I get quite a bit of creativity at work, especially when we go to do new product lines or think about the future. But then there are times where it's not as creative. Like, we just have got to get boxes out the door. Yeah. Or, you know, we're doing pricing strategy. Um, and when my job is not as creative, I go home and write. And it balances me. And it feeds me. And I've learned to like I said earlier, champion my imagination because I know it's one of my best friends. Like it nurtures me in a way I never expected. And I wished I'd started writing earlier so I could get this piece from it uh -huh. in my life and really start to understand the role it would play. It's also a fantastic coping mechanism. I can't tell you how useful it's been during COVID. <laughs> you know, when I'm really stressed or... You know, I have loss in my life, or there's stuff going on at work that isn't cute, if you know yeah. what I mean. Um, and I need to step out and into another world. Yeah. Writing helps me do that. That said, so does organizing my closet. <laughs> so does uh, Marie Kondoing my house. So there's lots of ways you can feed your, your what-if-up mechanism, your imagination, and and really protect yourself and learn to cope and nurture yourself when you need it. Creativity nurtures most people yeah. when they need it, even yeah. if you're left-brained. And that's that's a really cool thing I wasn't taught as a child. I had to learn that later in life. Yeah. Well, and I feel like this last year, reading has been so crucial yes. for me to escape and get away. And there were certain times where I was like, okay, I want to learn this or you read a more intense book and then you're, okay now I just need a book that I don't even have to think you know uh -huh. I need yep. something that's fun yeah. and happy and then you're ready to go back to other yeah. more intense books think of you as an author and you were saying you have to protect this creativity yeah. and I think of you know if people weren't willing to do that and write these amazing stories and books that helped us to live in another world and kind of get outside of our you know, our day-to-day -day monotony of life so sometimes. So did Burning Sozo do that? Yeah, I loved it. it. Yeah, okay. I, you know, and I listen to books and I love listening to it. And I feel like, yeah, I couldn't finish it fast enough. Listen to it and, you know, every minute of the day that I could just turn it on for a minute here and there, cooking dinner mm -hmm. and doing dishes and things like that. You know, sometimes life is kind of boring. <laughs> There's a lot of tasks and things that in my day are not, don't feel super fulfilling by themselves. How fun is it to load and unload the dishwasher or yeah, fold yeah. loads of laundry <laughs> or things like that? Unless you're imagining you're doing that in Arius Adams' black glass house. Exactly. And you're some, your brain's somewhere else and yeah. then we can do this. Yes, yes. I'll do another load yeah. of this. Or you're at his black and white party where there are white tigers and, you know, crystal studded hot air balloons. I know. I kept thinking, how did she think of all of this stuff? It just so, shows up. It just shows up. So there's here's one thing I have learned. There's different kinds of writers. There's a writer called an architect where they outline the entire thing. They build the bones of the story uh -huh. before they ever start stepping into a scene. And then there's writers called gardeners. 
and they actually step into the garden and see what flowers are there. And I'm a combination. Okay. So I will think of a skeleton plot, and then I will stand in the scene, and it's almost like curtains open for me, and I'm there with Andy and Arius and Jonathan Chen, and they just show up. That's the other thing. None of those people are real people in my life. <laughs> and people will say, oh my gosh, is your mother just a bitch? Like, come on. <laughs> Liz Goggin is a hot mess. And I'm like, no, my mother's the sweetest thing ever. Like, Liz just showed up and Andy just showed up. Well, because everybody else thinks, up. like, if I were to write this story, I would have to, like, base it off of the people I already know. Not one and... of them. <laughs> Not one of them. Except for maybe Shauna. Shauna's a little bit me. Because <laughs> I call people hun. And I have lots of Native American jewelry. And sometimes I get my idioms wrong. But no, they, they came to me. They, they show up fully formed. And even some of the scenes, like the house, fully formed in my head. The way that they look and everything. Yes. When they show up, you see what they look like and their personality and all those mm -hmm. things. Yes. Does it evolve a lot? or it, it is, That's a good question. It does evolve. Their backstory evolves for me. So little details start to show up. So frankly, when I'm imagining a book, I'm standing on, over the right shoulder of my protagonist, and I'm following her around. Interesting. Um, and I'm seeing the action happening and how they're reacting, but the backstory isn't fully fleshed out yet. And I don't know how they're going to react to everything. And I do write myself into corners. So I am that combination of architect and gardener where I will, I will create a rough plot and then, I, and then my imagination stops. That's the other thing. You have to learn how your imagination works. And I learned at a certain point I could only outline so much and then I didn't get anything else. I then had to stand in the scene and then it started coming. And people learn how their imagination works just by trying. You just have to keep trying. What do you mean that you had to stand in the scene? I mean... Do you imagine this, the scenery so, and kind of... Yeah, so like for example, I would create a plot point. So like for example, when Andy doesn't go to nationals because her mother shows up and makes her stay. But I hadn't designed where she was going to be, who she would be with, what that scene played out like. That's what I mean by stepping into the scene. So I may have that one plot point on the page, but at a certain point, I have to then say, okay, what does this scene look like? And the way my brain works is I will, literally, it's like two curtains opening and I'm standing in a movie. And I was on the sidewalk in front of that Santa Fe High School with the bleached out bus, with her talking to Jessica Flynn and Great Grant came by and then... The mom shows up with her hair all messy and grass stains on her knees and, and all of that that goes down. That's what I mean by standing in the scene. And that's a more spontaneous way of writing. So I'm sort of a hybrid. I do the architecture, the overarching scaffolding, and then I'll stand in the scene. And it's honestly, it's like a movie for me. Now then I do have to go back in and craft. And editing takes me an eternity. I can draft really quick, but then I have to go back in and make sure all my details are correct, all the logic is sound, I need to make sure that I am giving enough to the reader in the words. That's one of the things I struggle with, is I see so much, and that's a right-brained skill, uh -huh. um, putting it into language so that the reader is seeing what I'm seeing is left-brained, and that's the chore for me. Yeah. And I'm a tiny bit dyslexic, too. 
So editing is difficult for me. So if you find a typo, let me know <laughs> in the book. But anyway, that's what I mean by that. And I had to learn that that's how my imagination works. I had to learn that in order to write a 400-page novel, I had to protect those phases and that I wasn't really having writer's block. My imagination had reached the end of the architecture phase. And then I had to go into the gardening phase. And it's fascinating when you learn how your imagination creates how much easier it is and how much more productive you can be. So when it stops on me and I can't get anything else, I know I need to shift gears and go into the other phases. The other thing I learned is sometimes I just need to start in the middle. I've started novels in the middle before or one of the last scenes. So the scene at the Zozobra burning uh -huh. was one of the first scenes I wrote. Oh, interesting. And it's near the end of the book. It's near the climax of the book. By the way, I went to Santa Fe to the Zozobra burning to, to figure out how, how all of that worked. And a lot of the details in that scene, that's one of the few scenes that has details from real life. I love the ending. I, I'm glad. I mean, I won't, I'm we don't glad. need to give away too much, but I really loved. And you were telling me that in it, there's a lot of themes about immigration. And I was really glad that you had that in there because there's entertaining novels, but I also feel like it's important in the books that we read to have it open our eyes and see another person's perspective. And I love that aspect of the book. And you were saying that you weren't sure that you were going to put that in the book when we had talked well before. I I wasn't sure about the last scene yeah where she kind of talks about that and I'm not going to say anything <laughs> more about that but I did start writing this with her as a Latina voice her name was Talia her father was Mexican and you know undocumented worker that came from Mexico and it didn't work she didn't sound authentic yeah and so you write what you know, right? So yeah. I switched to Caucasian and her father Canadian. And not only did she sound more authentic, but the situation became more interesting. Because not only were they outcasts with U.S. citizens, they were outcasts in the undocumented Mexican community and they had no one. So it actually built tension for her. Yeah. And she was completely alone and their family had been hiding for years and years from both communities. Yeah. Um, and it just made it way more interesting and more authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really interesting. A lot of times you don't step into what is it like to be the child of an undocumented worker yeah. and feeling like you can't speed or you can't do anything when she, they get pulled over that by the police officer and she literally has to lie yep. about why she has a bruise on her face. She would never want to get her friend in trouble because she loves him. Mm -hmm. She has to protect her family. And to have that much pressure on such a young person yes. is, is a, is a yes. loss. And in this novel, Andy's parents are not the most parental. I am just going to say yeah, that. They are. <laughs> They're not the most protective. And she really, that weight falls on her shoulders. The other thing that, though, that I, I really wanted to explore is, you know, what, what would that feel like? To not have a country, not have a community, and feel like you have to save this family and not really understand how to get power in yeah. order to do it. That's the other thing. She desperately wants to be a lawyer because she feels like that's the way to get her family power and allow them to be safe and to really understand the system. And she uses the phrase, work the system. Yeah. We talk about later in the novel but an understanding what's real and what isn't she's in that place in her life where she's trying to figure all of that out and feels backed into a corner in several ways 
even with her own family. Yeah. Like in a lot of ways, Andy feels like her mother has backed her into a corner. And so I thought, you know, what would that be like? So I what if into her shoes. Yeah. And what if this happened to her? And what if that happened? And what if she didn't speak Spanish? Yeah. And there's another scene where their neighbor's getting beat up by her ex-boyfriend and no one's going to call the cops. Yeah. Because she's undocumented. Yeah. And it would end her up in more trouble. And that vulnerable place where you can't get help from law enforcement because you're undocumented and you won't go to the hospital either yeah. was a really interesting place for me yeah, to step super into. As American citizens, we have the freedom of speech. But... If you're undocumented, you don't. I even had a friend that I interviewed on the podcast. She had to be really careful about what she said. Who's going to listen to this? You know, it was interesting hearing sometimes the backstory of what they're concerned about, what they can't say, tells a lot more about the story than what they are, what they do say. Exactly. Now, here's the other interesting thing. Andy and I don't share the same political views. And isn't that interesting? I started writing this, Uh and although my political views kind of shifted by writing it, I came to the table with a certain opinion about undocumented workers, Uh and it wasn't Andy's opinion. And by living through this with her, I came to really understand her and really see the other side of the coin. And my opinions shifted with her. Yeah. But I didn't craft that. She should just showed up in my head with her own situation and her own vulnerabilities. And it was a fascinating journey for me, personally as the author, to go through that with her. That surprises me because I would think that that would be, this is something that's important to me. And so I'm going to add this to my story to be able to kind of share what I think is important. But that's interesting that it... No, I didn't go into this story with that intent. Now, it may have ended up that Andy makes a statement and goes through her own journey, and I'm glad. Uh But I followed her through this story. Tell us a little bit more about Arius and where you came up with this character. He's super fascinating. So Arius was also, there was crazy coincidences around him. And I had named him and written almost the entire novel before I discovered that the name of the priest who was creating all the controversy that controversy that the Nicene Council came out of, the whole Catholic Church was born of trying to protect the doctrine, that the name of that priest was Father Arius. I didn't know that going in. I've never read that before. That was coincidence, but a very nice one. It dovetailed yeah. beautifully with the story and all of the biblical hooks in there, and especially Christoph Belikoff's character and what matters to him. Yeah. So there were some really unusual things that just showed up. And I kind of love that they just showed up. And I love that Andy learned through the book. Yeah. And I learned with her as a reader almost. Even yeah. though I was the author and crafting a lot of what the detail was. I was watching her. Yeah. Which was fun. There's twists and things that you get surprised about. Is it hard knowing that some of those things are going to happen to hide that in your writing to make it? Suspenseful? Yes, although because I'm this kind of hybrid of architect and gardener, some of that shows up for me, and sometimes I write myself into a corner, and then I have to figure out how to get out of it. (laughs) So it's fun for me, too. The other thing is, there were places where I didn't give enough foreshadow. So I have a group of teen beta readers who read my young adult fiction, which this is, um, and they came back 
wanting specific endings to the book that I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is, he is not Edward Cullen. Like, we, this is not a good thing. So I immediately started looking at the beginning of my novel to foreshadow, and I don't want to tell too much, but to foreshadow things so that correct character intentions and suspense was built at the right points in the novel. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So the scene at the very beginning of the novel where he pulls up in a black Maserati to a cafe, uh-huh. I added, that was one of my last scenes, because I needed to plant a specific seed, and there's a, a two words in that, that particular scene that flips the suspense in the novel completely. And when that scene wasn't there, people were misunderstanding a lot of what I needed them to understand. And the suspense was too quiet at the beginning of the book. Like, you didn't have tension about what was going to happen to Andy in the same way. Yeah. It was more about her mom. Yeah. Just two little words placed in the right place in the book completely flipped the suspense, and the, the plot became different. And the experience of the reader becomes different at that point. Well, it's amazing to learn about your imagination and you stepping into the scene. Your imagination really is a gift, and it's amazing just hearing about that and the gift that you have and then you're able to then have other people be able to step into that world and have this whole other world that they're able to experience. I think that that's a really awesome thing. It's amazing that that you're just doing this after you've already worked like a full day that you still have all this energy and creativity to be able to to work on that. So I'm just curious, how long did it take to write Burning Zozo? For okay. So that's a really good question. So, and by the way, I wrote this six years ago, seven years ago. I can't remember. There's several years ago I wrote this. So I went to Santa Fe, New Mexico and watched the burning of the Zozobra at the Santa Fe Fiesta in September. I had had an idea already about a girl in Santa Fe and who Arius Adams was and and what his role was going to be in sort of the end of days. Then I went to Santa Fe and did a bunch of research. I had my skeleton outline and knew roughly the locations I needed to research. All those locations are real in Santa Fe, including Feathered Friends of Santa Fe New Mexico. The shops in there are real, except K&H isn't, but it's based on another turquoise <laughs> store. Anyway, so I went to Santa Fe with kind of my rough outline and my locations in mind. And then I got home from Santa Fe, and probably in eight weeks, I drafted the entire novel in my spare time at night. Wow. I got a full-time job during the day. I can draft really quick. But then it probably took me four years off and on to edit it. Because it just sucks the life out of me to edit a novel. And I've even hired editors, content editors. I have friends who helped me edit. But I would set it down, pick it back up. Set it down, pick it back up. Send it to beta readers, pick it back up. So the refining process takes me a long time. The story itself comes really fast because I'm just dictating the movie that I'm seeing in my head. And did you feel like some of your editors tried to take away from your story or change things too much? or No, editors like have... are very respectful that way. I also don't really appreciate when people say stuff like, the first half of your book is slow. <laughs> I appreciate that. Or, this character doesn't make sense. Or, why did this happen? I totally appreciate it. Now, I'm because I started later in life, I'm not the kind of writer who... 
their identity is tied up in their novel. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not my baby. I didn't birth it. There's no DNA of mine in it. It's not me on the page either. It's something I created just like I create skincare at work or yeah. makeup at work. It's, for lack of a better word, a product. And so I don't get as emotionally involved in it as other, certain other writers do. And that also allows me to really recreate pieces. Yeah. So when they say, this scene doesn't make sense, or, or this is flat, or I don't really understand this, I can then step back into the movie and recreate it because I'm not emotional about it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Which I think it would be hard not to be emotional about it because you do invest so much time. Well, but because it's not my main job, I, I'm that way. And maybe yeah. I have the temperament to be a writer because of yeah. that. My dad wrote a novel when I was young and tried to have it published. And when it didn't get published, it devastated him. Yeah. And I'm like, why? It's not you. It's a it lovely is. story, but it's not you. So I have that in my soul. I know not everyone does. But it would be like if I created a lotion and not everyone loved it, but yeah. certain people did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if they said, this smells bad, I would immediately change the formula. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think I'm kind of unique that way. And maybe that's part of my gift. Yeah. Is I'm not emotionally tied up in it. Now, where the emotion does kick in, though, is when you spent hours and hours and hours and hours on it. Uh-huh. And then at that point, you're like, Okay, I either just need to put this out into the world or stop looking at it. There yeah. is an emotional breaking point where I just don't have energy for it. And everyone has that. People who are painting their house or redecorating <laughs> their, their wall, like they're like, okay, I'm done. I can't look at this anymore. Yeah. I do have that point. Now, that said, when I have that point, one thing I know about myself is if I think about a new direction, a new way to do it, it reignites me. So I had an agent. I had a literary agent who was working with me and we were trying to get this published in a traditional way and it was sucking the life out of me and he wanted me to be Harper Lee bless his heart he taught me to be a better writer but he did not want what's called speculative fiction coming out of me and that's what this is he didn't want supernatural he didn't want fantasy he didn't want action he didn't want sci-fi well that is where my imagination lives yeah he wanted Harper Lee a quiet little little literary novel and he made suggestions about how to change the novel to make it a quiet little literary novel. And I finally said to him, Scott, I think we need to break up. Yeah. So I went in that direction and it got to a point where I just didn't have energy for it anymore. And I just couldn't think about it and I couldn't touch it anymore. And I put it on the shelf for probably a year and a half. Wow. And then I was listening to a podcast, a friend's podcast, and I thought, wait a minute, I don't have to publish this in a traditional way. And I wasn't that juiced about self-publishing in a book form, although I ended up doing that, and I'm glad I did. I thought, what would be a fresh way that would get my energy going again? How could I, what if up, like yeah. let's what if up and forward on this. What if I did this in a podcast? And so I started looking into that and started looking for actresses and auditioning actresses to read the novel and then I was at work and a friend of mine and I were talking about dreams and I said to her what's your dream her name's Mallory Cave she's one of the musicians on my podcast and she said she'd always wanted to sing and in fact she demo she had a demo album that she was trying to get signed and she was auditioning for American Idol and all you know she was she was going for it and the thought came to me you know one of the things I love about movies and one of the ways I write better is with music. 
So I thought, what if I had a kind of a mini soundtrack to my podcast, to my novel? What if I had music that supported the emotion of certain episodes or certain scenes? And what if at the same time I helped expose unsigned artists who don't have their music out there in the world at the yeah. same time? And could we sort of create this new form of storytelling together? And so that was how I launched Burning Zozo. It launched first as a podcast with music and a book at the same time. And so it's on Amazon. There's a print, you can get a printed book or an ebook, but also there's this podcast with this fabulous actress and all this glorious music. And the launch party actually was a concert where some of the musicians came and played. And it's been so fun to have that layer of content with the book. So what I would say is if a traditional way of creating something in the world doesn't fit with you or it drains your energy, shift directions and think of a new way to put it together and a new, you'll create a new form of yeah. whatever that is. And again, it doesn't have to be art like this. It could be a new snow tire or <laughs> you know, a new way of folding laundry. If you what if up, and I, that's what I did, not only with the story, but in how I brought it out to the world, is what if I did this through an episodic podcast? Yeah. And what if there was music on it? And I've got to tell you, I fell in love with some of the music on that. So Well, I feel I like the music really helps you to really feel, feel like you're emotion. living that. Yep. And because, Andy, there's like a little bit of a love triangle, and there's some music that you're, oh, we're falling in love. And then there's other ones where it's more suspenseful and almost like a little dark, you're kind of feel more into it and so I think that was a really good way of yes. really kind of drawing you in I'm glad and I crowdsourced that by the way I did two posts on Facebook and I basically said any musicians that want to include their music with my podcast knowing that I would advertise it and send it out into the world it's on almost every podcast platform you know please participate and I found and interestingly like I haven't loved rap in the past but one of the best um, set of songs that fits the anxiety of this book is the rapper um, DJ Preston Lee and he's yeah. got a song called Demons that man he explains one scene perfectly yeah. and then there's this beautiful voice that's a little bit haunting on top of it it's just perfect yeah. and Allie Gardner's song called Confessions she'd written that song before she read my book well and she was like what 16 when she wrote the song yes and, and it's crazy it's exactly what Andy does. Andy writes these, these what she calls sort of um, depositions. She writes down her love for Kristoff uh -huh. in these letters that she never sends. Yeah. And that's exactly what the song was about. So there was this sort of synchronicity of all this coming together. And I will do this again. Like, find a new way to get, get your work out into the world. Um, even though I really only wrote it for myself. Yeah. It's been fun to put it out there and have other people step into that world yeah. and experience Andy's journey yeah. um, and no. hear the music, too. No, I thought it was really, really fun. And Good. I listened to tons of audiobooks. I probably listened to 30 or 40 books a year. But I feel like that was a fun element of, of having yeah the music in there. And, so, and that is one thing that I just want to let everybody know. I will be launching it as a traditional audiobook on Audible eventually oh, in the nice. next couple of months. So if you like that format, if you want the chaptering, and the music will be at the end. So we'll also have the full playlist at the end of the, the audiobook. Oh, okay. So, so they won't be at the end of each chapter? No. I had some people say they didn't want to wait. 
and listen to the music for the next episode. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So for the audiobook, I'm going to just do the whole story in chapters, and then the music will be at the end. If that okay. Makes sense. So if you want yeah. to hear it with the music embedded in the episodes, listen to the podcast. Okay. It's everywhere. Yeah. Wherever you podcast, you can find both. It was easy to find. Yeah. So. And I'll put a link to you, to Thank the Birdie Zozo so that Thank you. And people the book, can, yeah. if you don't mind. Yeah. If you prefer to read a book, there's one on Amazon. Yeah. So. You know, you've learned a lot about this process of writing and everything. If you could go back in time to when you very first had your idea and gave yourself advice on the writing process or just like being a writer, what do you think you would say? Well, I'll tell you what I did say to the powers that be. I said, I don't want to write. I don't want to do this. My dad had such a bad experience. Yeah. That when Philip, my character, kept coming to me and wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> and I knew I needed to write him down. And I knew the universe, or at least my subconscious, was telling me that. I fought it. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do it. And then I was in a quiet moment. I think I was out walking in the mountain. The thought came into my head, you are not your father. You need to write. Sort of the arguments beyond that stacked up. You know you have a, a more vivid imagination than he did. Your temperament is very different. It won't hurt your feelings if it doesn't come. Like, all these things started stacking as arguments in my mind, and I'm like, you're right. I'm going to try it. Yeah. And then I tried it, and I cannot tell you the joy I got from it. And it was almost like, you know when everybody else has had tiramisu and you haven't, you know? <laughs> and then you have it and you're like, what have I been missing my whole life that I haven't had tiramisu? It was that kind of moment that I'd almost been cheating myself of this joy. And at that moment, like, I was all in. And even when it's hard to edit or do some of these pieces that aren't the funnest parts, yeah. I'll do one of two things. I'll either set it on the shelf and give myself a break or I will hire someone <laughs> who likes to do it. And again, what if someone else edited for me, you know, and yeah. move in a different direction and try to solve the problem in a, in a fresh way. And it has given me joy, like down in my bones and helped me cope at times where I really needed it. Like through a summer of COVID where I was working from home and yeah. climbing the walls. And so that's what I would say to myself as a younger person. Try it. Yeah. If the impulse comes, try it. You'll never know. And you don't know if you yeah. can create something until you try it. I can totally relate to that with starting this podcast. Well, I have no experience and there's so many people that have tons of experience and know how to edit way better or know how to have better equipment or you can rationalize yourself out of anything. I'm really grateful for this outlet because it really is fulfilling to me and I really enjoyed the process of being able to really get to know people better and also my own friends at a deeper level. It's really easy to say, I don't have the skills to be able to do this, so I'm just not going to do it. But I think that when you find something that is really fulfilling to you, if nobody else listens to it, at least it was a good experience for me. Obviously, your book has been successful and there's lots of people that have really enjoyed it. But I think going in, this is a good experience. Let's just go for it. Absolutely. I will never be J.K. Rowling or <laughs> Stephen King. I don't want to be. I just want to enjoy the process. And the other thing is it feeds me. 
That is one thing I would tell my younger self. Be very aware of what feeds your energy and what drains it. Yeah. There's purpose in that. And it will become an important part of your life. If it feeds your energy, it's part of your purpose. Yeah. And if it drains you, hire someone to do it for you. <laughs> if that makes sense. And you, you don't know if it feeds your energy until you try it. You just have to sit down and try it. And it's okay if you fail miserably, you move on, you try something else. Yeah. But I feel like there's a lot of people so afraid to try things because they're afraid they'll fail. They'll fail. Understanding what you're not going to do is just as important as understanding what you can do. Does that make sense? Like yeah. Crossing it off the list is an important exercise in life. And life is long. Yes. Try stuff. Try all of it. And that, that's what I would say to me, my younger self about writing. Pay attention to your energy. And if it's feeding your soul, it's going to be a good friend in your lifetime. And it's going to be medicine for your soul when you need it. And a, a really good tool to help you cope and feed yourself. And no one can feed your energy but yourself. And we're not taught that as children. We're not taught about our energy. And it's just as important as feeding your body, as feeding your mind, as feeding your soul. Yeah. And so you've got to try stuff to know if it feeds you or not. I like that. I think sometimes we can fill our lives with things that, that drain yes. us and that sometimes the things that fill us might take a little extra effort. But you have to look at, I will be so much better off if I just do those things that I know that I need. Agreed. And you'll burn out. Life <laughs> is long and difficult. And jobs are hard, and marriages are hard, and children are hard. And if you're not feeding, if you're not filling the cup, and only you know what to do to fill the cup, by the way. You have to champion your own cup and protect it and nurture it. If you're not filling it, you run dry, and you become the worst version of yourself at yeah. that point. You know, Andy even realizes that in the book. She, she talks about becoming the worst version of herself and how to turn that around and, and how to fill your cup, feed yeah. your soul. I like that. So I love how in the story you paint the picture of how it isn't always easy to make the right choice and how standing up for the right choice can be risky. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you've experienced that in your own life? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> yes. I've had moments in my life. I just had them this week at work. <laughs> where I had to have a critical conversation and be honest about something that wasn't working and make a tough decision. And I have learned that people deserve honesty, even if it's not pretty. And that you just have to be integrous and muster the strength to talk to people and tell them when things aren't working. And there were a lot of years where I didn't do that and I didn't set boundaries for myself. And it was bad. Like, boundaries are critical. You really need to learn how to be able to be honest with yourself and other people and set those boundaries. Otherwise, you can, again, drain your energy and drain your soul. And that's not good. That's, that's a really unhealthy way to live. So the younger you can learn that and how to do it in a kind way that doesn't damage the relationship, the better off you'll, you'll be. Absolutely. When Andy was having to make some of these hard decisions, you're almost like, it would be so easy just to go with the flow of this. Like it, sometimes making the, the right choice isn't always the most convenient. 
way. And I yes. love how you painted that picture. This would be a hard decision to make, you know? And Well, and especially because she was deciding between people she cared about. Yeah. That's the other thing. When you deeply care for someone and they're asking you to make a difficult choice and do something that rubs against your integrity, it's hard to say no. Yeah. Especially if it puts them at risk. And that is the conundrum Andy gets into. And she really has to think through that. And I got to tell you, there were moments like where I thought she was going to go in one direction and she went in the other. Like, there, and there's things she does in that book that surprised me because they weren't good. Yeah. Where I was like, oh my gosh, that is so bad. <laughs> I did have one reader say to me, I just really don't like Andy, and I'm halfway through the book. That's a problem. <laughs> and I'm like, oh dear, that might be a problem. But she's like a real girl in my mind. With yeah. Flaws and does stupid stuff and is super anxious about certain things. I think she's the smartest person in the room, too, by the way. <laughs> if you notice that, she thinks she's all that in a cup of rice in certain areas of the book. And then life starts showing her differently. Yeah. And her vulnerability comes out. She starts to realize that not everything is as it seems. Yeah. And that she has to dig a little deeper. And yeah. she has to learn who to trust and who not to trust. And that journey was an interesting one to watch. Yeah. A lot of us go through this, you know, and I think as teenagers, we just naturally have got it all figured out. <laughs> and then life has a way of humbling us and teaching us that actually we have a lot to learn. And the world isn't always as black and white as we thought it was. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I've had times in my life where I've trusted people, just wholeheartedly trusted them, and they did not have the best intentions for me. And that has become apparent at a certain point. And you have to choose out of that. You can't stay in that relationship or it becomes super destructive to yeah. your soul. And so, you know, I don't want to spoil her. What the fuck? But... Andy runs into that on several levels with several different people, including yeah. her mother yeah. and her father. Like, she's got a complicated relationship with those two people. And, you know, even her brothers and sisters she has a complicated relationship with. And how does she choose? Um, and she ties herself into some serious knots. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I feel like everyone needs to listen to it or read it. It's such an amazing story. And I feel like you really just suck the reader in and it's it's just one of those books you can't put down you just okay. gotta you want to know what's gonna happen next and it's really suspenseful and just a fun Thanks, Liz. a fun story and I love the biblical elements of adding Cain and all of that into the story it's just super fun and everybody needs to get their hands on it I wanted to ask you my last question, and that's if you could go back in time and to any stage of life and give yourself advice, where would you go and what would you say? I think I would go back to when I chose a major in college for undergrad. I really wanted to be a fashion designer, uh -huh. but I thought I had to be like this great artist out of the gate. Like I thought I had to be Michelangelo and be able to sketch fabulous outfits and all of that. I didn't realize how technical it was and that art is 90% technique and 10% inspiration. And so I chose fashion merchandising. I went in the business direction. Now, I don't regret it. It has served me well, especially because I do a lot of work in the beauty industry and they, they dovetail beautifully. 
but I think I would have been a good fashion designer in the end. Once I learned how to do the art, I was afraid of the art. Yeah. And so that's another thing. Don't be afraid of the art. Don't be afraid of the writing. Don't be afraid of the pottery throwing. Like whatever it yeah. is that you want to try, there is a learning curve for everybody. No one is a prodigy. Even the greatest designers in the world went through art school first, and no one told me that. Yeah. I thought you either had that skill set or you didn't. I didn't yeah. realize it's learned. And so that's what I would say at probably 18 going into college. You can learn what you want to learn to be what you want to be. Like, there is a skill to be learned there. Um, and don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of the art or the writing or the pottery or whatever it is that yeah. you want to do or the mathematics, whatever it is you want to do. Don't be afraid of it. You've got to try it. Just try yeah. it. And so that's what I would say to her. I like that. And one thing I feel like I've learned from you today is that it doesn't have to be a decision that you make when you're 18 nope. years old. Nope. That you can make that decision later and you can still learn those skills. Life is long. Yeah. Life is really long. I could still go back and go to fashion school in my spare time, right? Sure. If I wanted. I mean, yeah. there's all the spare time, right? Absolutely. After your 40, 50 hour, Absolutely. I don't know how many hours you work yeah. at work, but yeah, exactly. who knows? So, yeah. well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure my to pleasure. Thank you, learn from you. And it's so fun to hear, to read a book and then to talk to the author and kind of get the, the backstory. It was Really a fun My experience for me. really fun. Thank so you. This is Liz Gardner. Thank you for listening to Letters to My Younger Self. I really appreciate all your support. If this episode helped you, please share it with a friend. Feel free to reach out if you have any recommendations for topics or people that you would like to hear in the next upcoming episodes. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a great week.